Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Strange State, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Liz Higgins, and I'm so excited to be back. It was a nice weekend off, but believe it or not, I really missed you guys. So, if you will also notice, this episode is coming to you on a Thursday. Welcome to the new day for the Strange State podcast. I know that our normal day was Sunday, but with work and other responsibilities, I couldn't bring you guys the consistency or the quality I wanted, so we're changing it up a little bit. Here we are on a Thursday. So welcome back, and I hope you're going to enjoy this new day to get your true crime podcast fix. All right, so with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week. If you listened to last week's episode, I told you that we would begin covering a new state this week, and if you're a member of the Patreon, which you should be, you got to vote on which state we would go to next. Well, without further ado, this week, you guys voted and I listened. We are going to one of the holy mecca of true crime locations, so buckle in, grab your plane ticket, because we are heading to Washington State. Ah, okay. So I know you guys are super excited because I'm super excited and we like the same things. That's why you're here, right? Washington state was named after George Washington himself. It is the only state to be named after a president. Luna back there. Uh, It is also known as the evergreen state and is home to 10 different volcanoes with half of them being considered active. There are lots of legends surrounding the forests in Washington. Some say they have a special hold over people that makes them do strange things. Hmm, I wonder why we're drawn there. And I'm going to start off with a heavy hitter in the killer department. I am really excited, and I know you guys are going to love this one. took me a lot of time to get it together, but I'm pumped about it. I haven't covered anyone of this magnitude yet, so I am pumped. Okay, let's dive in. Gary Leon Ridgway is one of the most prolific serial killers in the world. If you haven't heard of him, you will hopefully understand why by the end of this episode. I want to make it known that most of what we know about his childhood, his crimes, and his motivations are all straight from his own mouth. It's very obvious that he revels in the attention and the notoriety that he gets from these crimes. Much like Ted Bundy and other notorious serial killers, we want to use the information that they give us to learn from them, but not make them celebrities. Okay, so with that being said, Gary frickin' Ridgeway. He was born on February the 18th, 1949, to Mary Rita Steinman and Thomas Newton Ridgeway. He was the middle child to all boys and did not have the best relationship with his family. He would have violent fights with his mother. He was often ridiculed by her in front of other family members, including his brothers, for wetting the bed, which he did into his late teens. His relationship with his mother was never a healthy one. There are reports of violent and sometimes very inappropriate interactions between the two. She was rumored to sunbathe naked in their backyard with the boys' home, and he admitted that he would hide away to watch her in private. 
She would often bathe him after one of his bedwetting episodes. She would do this claiming that his dirty parts, in air quotes, would need to be cleaned and would violently scrub at his genitals. This behavior would continue well into his teens. As he grew, he developed an unhealthy attraction towards his own mother, seeing her as the ultimate conquest. But in the same side, no different side of the same coin, he also absolutely reviled her and hated her as his mother. He would watch her belittle his father, who was meek and bent to her will. It was said that this is where his hatred for women was nurtured and thrived. His relationship with his father wasn't any better. Thomas worked part-time at a mortuary where he would come home and tell his son about his co-workers performing acts of necrophilia on the corpses. It is important to remember that anything that may have happened throughout his life no way excuses his crimes, but it does help us understand some of his motivations. In school, he was of below-average intelligence, and he didn't do very well academically, but he was friendly enough and made friends like any other child. This is unusual. Usually, serial killers have a hard time making friends because of their lack of empathy, and they haven't developed the capacity to fake it yet, so to speak. There was one incident whenever he was 16 years old. He led a six-year-old boy into the woods and stabbed him in between his ribs. He would later say that he walked away laughing with a smile on his face and said he always wondered what it would be like to murder someone. He quickly married after graduation to his high school sweetheart, Claudia, and then signed up for the Navy. He was quickly shipped to Vietnam, where it was said he had his first of many encounters with a sex worker who gave him gonorrhea. This flared up a hatred for women that then would be completely focused on sex workers. When he returned home from serving overseas, he came back to a broken home. It seemed while he was having fun with sex workers in Vietnam, his wife was having some fun of her own. Like most of the vets in the Vietnam War, he ended up back in his hometown, divorced and jobless. He rebounded pretty quickly and found a job and a new wife. His new wife tried to match his sexual appetite, and they would constantly up the ante, usually having sex outdoors in public places. But when their son was born, it all changed and it made Gary resent his new son because he couldn't have his way with his wife anytime he wanted anymore. It was during this time that Marcia, his second wife, said that he would become highly religious and in turn more violent in the bedroom, even choking her on several occasions. Because of his new attitude towards her and their son, she eventually divorced him as well. This would start his appetite for sex workers again, and very soon after his second wife left him, he was arrested for strangling one. This would lead Gary into the 80s. This is when women started to turn up near the Green River in Washington State, and they started to turn up dead. All right, we're going to pause right here for a quick word from our sponsors. We will be right back. So... How are you listening to this podcast? Are you listening on Apple Music? Are you listening on Spotify? I bet you're listening on Stitcher. That's how I listen to podcasts. I love Stitcher. 
It is home to over 260,000 podcasts from classics like My Favorite Murder and Crime Junkies and Cults and Haunted Places. It's got such a wide range. It also has smart recommendations and playlists so you can find your favorite shows and organize all your current podcasts you're listening to, and it'll even learn your patterns and start picking podcasts for you, and it hasn't steered me in the wrong direction yet. Stitcher is a free app for iPhone and Android, so you can get it on both, and it's awesome. Now, if you're listening on Stitcher, do you have Stitcher Premium? Stitcher Premium has bonus episodes, exclusive shows, and ad-free listening. I have Stitcher Premium. Do you like true crime? Listen to exclusive archives from Criminology or bonus episodes from True Crime Garage or ad-free episodes of My Favorite Murder if you're into that. You can sign up today for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 for an entire year. If you use our promo code, Strange State, you will get an entire month for free to try it out. So go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use that promo code. Promo codes are unfortunately not valid on the app at the moment, but they are working to fix that. So it must be used on the website. Again, strange state. Free. Free month. Go do it now. Okay. Thank you guys for sticking around through sponsorship time. Now we are going to get right back into it. So these women that would show up dead in the Green River area, these women would be sex workers from around Washington. And they would all be killed and dumped in a similar fashion. Some of them posed, some of them left there like trash. It became obvious to the police very early on that what they were dealing with was a serial killer. This is going to be long and this next part is going to be completely dedicated to the victims. There's a lot of victims and these aren't even all of them. These are just specific ones that they tied to him originally that he later admitted to. There's not a lot known about each individual victim so I just want to give them their own moment, and I want all of us to know that they were daughters and mothers and sisters of those people out there that still live and keep their memory alive. There are a lot of memorials for these people, and I think that's so important, and we just need to remember their names. Wendy Lee Caulfield was found at the age of 16. She had run away from her foster home in Tacoma, Washington on July the 8th in 1982. She would never be seen alive again. She would be found by two young boys a week later floating on the edge of the Green River. She would always be considered his first victim. 19-year-old Giselle Lavorne was last seen leaving her apartment on July 17, 1982. It was believed she was headed to start her night of sex work. Her remains were found a couple of months later on September 25, 1982. Deborah Lee Bonner, 22, disappeared from the Pacific Highway on July 25th. She wasn't seen again until a worker found her body in the Green River on August the 12th of that same year, 1982. 
If you notice, this is three women in the span of one month. And if you know anything about serial killers, this is a really quick turnaround between victims. I think it speaks to the depravity of Ridgway's mind and the veracity of his appetite. 31-year-old Marcia Faye Chapman was last seen leaving her apartment that she kept with her three children on August the 1st. A man rafting in the Green River on August 15th found her body. Cynthia Jean Hines, a 17-year-old, went missing on August the 11th and wasn't seen again until her body was found four days later on the 15th of August, a few feet from where Marcia was found. Opal Charmaine Mills, she was found on the same day that Marcia and Cynthia were found by the police who were investigating the other girl's murders. She was only 16 years old, and the last contact she had was with a phone call made to her parents on August the 12th, just three days earlier. Terry R. Milligan, 16, vanished from Pacific Highway South on August 29, 1982. Investigators found her remains in April of 1984. Then things went quiet for a few months. Then 23-year-old Denise Bush left to get cigarettes and disappeared on October the 8th in 1982. Her remains weren't discovered until June the 12th of 1985. 19-year-old Mary Meehan was seven months pregnant when she went missing, September 15th, 1982. She wasn't found until November 13th of 1983. Deborah Lorraine Estes? A 15-year-old that had run away from home disappeared on September the 20th, 1982, while on the Pacific Highway. Workers later found her remains while digging holes for a playground at a Federal Way apartment complex May 30th, 1988. Shonda Lee Summers, 17, disappeared sometime in the first week of October in 1982. Her remains were found on August the 11th, 1983. Shirley Sherrill, a curly-haired 18-year-old, was last seen in late October of 1982. Her remains were found on June 14, 1985. Colleen Brockman, a 15-year-old girl with braces, went missing on Christmas Eve. Her remains were discovered May 26, 1984, a little less than two years after she went missing. Alma Ann Smith, a blonde 18-year-old, disappeared from Pacific Highway South on March the 3rd, 1983. Her remains were found April the 2nd, 1984. Dolores Laverne Williams, 17, disappeared from outside a hotel in March of 1983. Her remains were found March 31, 1984. Gail Lynn Matthews, 23, went missing on April the 10th, 1983. Two people later discovered her skeletal remains on September the 19th, 1983. In 1983, Gary Ridgway was questioned after a woman who had turned up missing had seen possibly getting into his truck. He was given a polygraph test and passed. In 1983, polygraph tests were standard, 
We now know they are very unreliable. During the investigation, it was discovered that there was a police report from 1982 that put him in a parked car with a sex worker. Two years later, a body was found nearby where they were seen parked. Nothing else could be linked to the victims or to Ridgeway at the time. Marie Malvar, 18, went missing April 30, 1983. She wasn't found until Ridgeway told the police where she was in September of 2003. Andrea Childers, 19, disappeared on April 14, 1983. She was found in 1989. Sandra K. Gabbert, 17, was last seen on April 17, 1983. Her remains were found April 1, 1984. Kimmy Pitzer, 16, vanished April 1983. Part of her was discovered in December of that same year, the other part not until December, two years later. Cheryl Lee Wims, 18. May 23, 1983 was the last time she was seen. Her remains were found on March 22, 1984. Carol Ann Christensen, 21, was last seen May 3, 1983, as she left a SeaTac tavern where she worked. She was found dead five days later. Martina Athorily, 18, of the Tacoma area disappeared from Pacific Highway South on May 22, 1983. Her remains were found November 14, 1984, in the woods off Highway 410 East. 19-year-old Yvonne Antosh was reported missing on May 31, 1983. Hunters then found her remains on October the 15th of the same year. Carrie Ann Royce a 15-year-old disappeared in May or June of 1983. Officers found her remains March 10th of 1985. Constance Neon, 20, disappeared June 8th, 1983. Her remains were discovered October 27th of the same year. Kelly Marie Ware, 22, was last seen on July the 18th, 1983. Her remains were discovered October 29th. She was found only a few feet away from where Constance was found two days earlier. Tina Marie Thompson, 22, went missing on July 25th, 1983. She was found April 20th, 1984. April Buttram, 17, disappeared in August of 1983. Ridgeway led investigators to her remains in August 2003, 20 years later. Debbie May Abernathy, a 26-year-old mother, disappeared September the 5th, 1983. A hunter discovered her remains in March 31st of 1984. Tracy Winston, 19, disappeared September 12, 1983. Her remains were found in March of 1986. Maureen Feeney, a 19-year-old former daycare worker, went missing September 28, 1983. Her remains were found in May of 1986. Mary Sue Bello, missing October the 11th, 1983, found October 12, 1984, over a year later. 
Kim Lee Nelson, missing November the 1st, 1983, found June 13th, 1986. An unidentified 15-year-old woman was found in March of 1984. Patricia Barzak, 19 years old, last seen October 17, 1986, and was found in pieces in February of 1993. Pammy Annette Avant, a 16-year-old girl, was last seen by her own mother on October 26, 1983. In August, the year he was caught, Ridgeway led them to her body. 22-year-old Delise Plager, went missing on October 30th of 1983. She was found on Valentine's Day of 1984. Cindy A. Smith, missing, 1984, found June 1987. Lisa Yates went missing in December of 1983 and wasn't found again until March 13th, 1984. Mary West left her family's home on February the 6th, 1984. She was found on September the 8th, 1985. December 30th, 1985, an unidentified African-American girl was found. She remains unidentified. Roberta J. Hayes got released from jail in February of 1987, and her remains were found on September the 11th, 1991. Patricia Yellowrobe age 38, was found on August the 6th, 1998. She was originally thought to be an accidental death and was only added to the list of Green River deaths after he admitted to it. Linda Rule was found on January 31, 1983, and Marta Reeves, a 36-year-old who had four children, went missing and her remains were found on September 20, 1990. There was one woman who managed to escape Rebecca Garde-Guay was picked up by Ridgeway and was paid for her services. Soon after they started, he began to choke her. Somehow, she escaped and ran for her life and made it to a trailer. Both of them would recount that story in later testimony. All of these women would die the same way they would be solicited, and Ridgeway would insist on paying them after he had had sex. They would then have sex with him and then strangle them. He would then dump them at one of his many dump sites. Sometimes he would go back to what he would call his clusters and have intercourse with their dead bodies. After the initial police investigation into Gary Ridgeway, they took a DNA sample, but it wasn't until a more sophisticated way of testing that DNA was discovered that it was matched to Gary Ridgeway. He was originally charged with the murder of the first three victims who had semen on them. It wasn't until he made a plea bargain with the prosecution that he agreed to confess in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. The prosecution was basically, for lack of a better term, executed for this plea deal, but I think it was very important. We needed to hear what he had to say, and a lot of those women wouldn't have been found and a lot of those families wouldn't have had the closure without him. I'm not saying that we give him praise for it, because I think that he took way too much pleasure in telling us what he did to these women. I just think that it's very important we keep that in mind whenever we think about the deal they made with him. In total, Gary Leon Ridgway was convicted of 49 murders. 
he confessed to a total of 71 murders, though some estimate that he may have killed more than 90 women, making him the deadliest serial killer of all time. His statement was that he wanted to kill as many sex workers as possible, and he has been very open about how it was done even telling police that he would lure women into his car with the promise of money and make them trust him by leaving toys of his sons in the car and showing them pictures of his son to make them more comfortable with him. In a video I watched of Gary Ridgway, he gave an anecdote about a time that a sex worker actually asked to see his driver's license to, I guess, see if he was a real like person, what his name was and things like that. And when he opened it up, he made sure he kept a picture of his son right next to that driver's license so that they would indirectly see it and innately trust him. When Ridgway was arrested, his entire family was taken aback. Even his neighbors that he grew up with down the road were shocked. They said they didn't remember anything that Gary Ridgway said negatively about his family, that yeah, his mother was strict, his father was strict, but that they were a loving family and they never noticed anything out of the ordinary. It is said that his mom did dress super inappropriately around him. Again, something that came out of his own mouth. It was also said that she controlled his finances, his clothing options even in adulthood after he had been married and had children of his own. He blames his mom for a lot of his crimes, but I blame his sick mind. He's obviously not on death row because he did give a plea bargain, but he will spend the rest of his entire life in jail. And we will also get any information that he wants to give us. Another quick anecdote that I just thought was really interesting but didn't find anywhere to fit it in the main bulk of the story is Ted Bundy actually offered to help catch him because the Green River was such an enigma. Think about all those bodies showing up in the span of two or three years and they created the Green River Task Force and Ted Bundy actually reached out to the Green River Task Force and gave his own version of a profile for them. He said that he would be killing close to his home, which was true. It was right down the road from his childhood home. It was in the neighborhood he grew up in and that he would be a man that would blend in with society, which is also very true. He's very similar looking to the BTK killer, and he's also very similar looking to a lot of these killers who fly under the radar. So it just goes to show that you never know who your neighbors could be. All right, guys, so I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. It was super interesting researching this case. There is a lot of information about it, so I know that I did not do a deep dive in this 30-minute episode. I might bring you a two-parter or something a little deeper on Patreon soon. Keep a lookout for that. If you don't already, follow us at Strange State Pod on Instagram. Go to our website at strangestatepod.wordpress.com. You can also find us at Strange State Pod, a true crime podcast on Patreon. And there are links of all those things on our website and on our Instagram page. 
but it's been so much fun bringing this to you guys and I will talk to you next week.